Hello! Welcome to Podspell. So this is our season finale. We made it! Yay! And I have two very, very special guests. Um, both of which I met first by reading their work on the new Play Exchange, which is a site that I'm both a huge supporter of, but also a frequent user. Um, I've read their work, left comments, and then through the majesty of the internet, um, we became friends. Um, <clears throat> so I did two separate interviews, first with Hannah Langley, and the second with Ricardo Soltero Brown. Um, just a little bit about them. Um, Hannah Langley um, is a playwright, and her mentor, Luis Alfaro, wrote, um, Hannah is an agitator who creates modern American mashups of current political movements and romantic comedies about people who don't seem like they should be together. She fits circles into squares and does not care who she annoys in the process. Hannah deconstructs religion and politics in the same play, and she refuses to play by the rules. This makes her very happy. So in part one, here is my interview with Hannah Langley. So um, Nina Simone said, you can't help it. An artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. Do you find that to be true in the work that you create or you write? Yeah, I I really do. I think it happens organically for me. I could set out to write a really silly animated feature about princesses and tigers and lions that it can turn out to be about class divisions. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's all kind of seeped in there. And I think that's true for most of my friends who are also artists, even if they're not trying to comment on the times, they're commenting on the times. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I think, I mean, even when I'm approaching a, a, a script or I'm, I'm figuring out, like, not only how it connects to me, but I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, like, what does the place say in today's context, you know? Yes. Yes. Totally. That's, I think that's how you have to read it. It's kind of like how rabbis read, um, like, the Torah. Yeah. They're always, it's always, like, through the lens of how is this, re- how is this story relevant now? What is it telling me about my now and the moment I'm in? Because obviously knowing the historical context is really important too, like what they meant then, but also how is it relevant to, to now and how is that how is it reflecting or not reflecting the truths of today? Yeah. I feel like it's, it's what makes so many plays... Um, like plays that sort of stand the test of time. Like I always think, like I just saw the National Theater Live production of um, Angels in America. And I just thought like, wow, what an incredibly topical play, even though mm-hmm. it's it's coming up to, you know, 30 years old. Oh my God, that's crazy to think that Angels in America is 30 years old. Like yeah. it doesn't even, of course the phone starts ringing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's getting there. <laughs> Going to the other room. Um, but yeah, it's that's crazy, and it's and it's so true. It's so um, it's so relevant still, but in in different ways. Yeah, the way it reflects how we are now, especially the whole Roy Cohn thing and the Trump connection. Um, um, is there anything specific about the political climate today that has had a direct influence on your writing recently? Um, yes, everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, well, the first play like that you read of mine, Losing Your Religion, I started writing right when Trump started campaigning. Oh, wow. 
and I and I wrote it to I wanted to write before he started campaigning. I was already interested in writing about the Westboro Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. But when he started campaigning, I'm like, oh, this this is a play about hate speech, and this is a play about how you like can you and how do you work past these insurmountable prejudices that so many fringe groups and also now not fringe groups in America have like are openly and willingly like spilling out vile things every day on Twitter yeah um and like how how and how can we heal can we heal can we still to these people if we do how do we do it so yeah. that's definitely that was definitely affected this um my plans have and now all my plays seem to be focusing more on um like the whole sexual soul situation the time like the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and I like play one of my plays that are made was definitely like I started writing it because I read the Brock Turner about the Brock Turner case and I was so mad and then it turned into a completely different play in the last year because it needed to be not about this happened because I you know now that people are talking about it it's like of course we know this happened it's like what do we do about the aftermath like how do we move past it can we move past it and so I feel like the the political climate of today is impo- like inescapable in my in my work, and I think it's the same with everyone else right now. I just feel like if you're not writing, if you're writing at least a little bit right now, I don't know where you are. I kind of want to visit because it sounds nice, black. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> Um, was there a defining moment in your life when making art was going to be your vocation? Like when you actively made the decision? Um, I think when I was around 12 or 13, I decided to show my dad the novel I'd been working on since (laughs) I was 11. And I kind of like was like, I wrote a book here it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> my dad was like, what? And like, it was kind of funny. It's like, oh, that's cute. But then he realized that I have like hundreds of pages of like notebook paper <laughs> that had been <laughs> written upon. And he was just kind of like, we can try and monetize on this or at least get you into a good coffee. <laughs> um, and then it became like writing instead of becoming an escape for very kind of like something that people can do. Yeah, totally. Well, right. Um, but so that's kind of, I think that was kind of the moment where it was like, oh, this isn't just for me anymore. This, I want this to be for other people as well. I don't want to just keep it in my room and yeah, do this for me. Was there a moment when that work, um, when you started noticing it was reflecting um, like current events or, or things that are going on now? Um, I don't, I think when I was in college, my work started changing to be more socially conscious because I was changing to be more socially conscious because I 
was a very sheltered child. I come from a very conservative background, so most of my stories were pretty, I would say, pretty weak because they didn't have a lot of conflict. It mm-hmm. was just like, we're going on a fun adventure right now. There is really no lesson to be learned or personal growth to be had. It's just we're bored, and we're like suburban bored children who want to go on adventures. Mm-hmm. And then, it, like in college, it was kind of like, oh, the world is a very big, scary place, and uh, and it's full of things that, like wrongs that need to be righted. Yeah. That I had no con- like no vocabulary for. Like I always knew those things were happening, and some of those things were happening to me, but I wasn't even aware. Yeah. Um, at the time because just my perspective so I think college is definitely like the place where that changed and just having really good people in my circle telling me their stories and asking me really good questions and like changing my mind about things or opening my eyes to things that I would have never seen on my own Mm -hmm. because of just how I was raised yeah kind of tying into that like we're seeing at least in this past these past midterms, like uh, a broader um, educational background, getting into politics. Um, there were several scientists and teachers and people from uh, more creative backgrounds getting into um, politics and, and even some winning their elections and taking office. Um, do you think there's there's value in, in incorporating even more um, non uh, like political science majors into a political atmosphere? Oh, totally. I think it's kind of the same way I feel about actors and writers and it's the same way I feel about politicians. I feel like people who do more than one thing and have more than one thing to bring to the table are always the better or at least not necessarily better, but they they have a very strong voice because they're not just doing politics also have a science background and they're bringing that into the room with them to help them make better decisions mm-hmm. decisions and perspectives that like a poli-sci major would never have because they just don't know about that perspective just yeah. like, my favorite actors that I've ever worked with were not theater majors yeah they were they were bringing like their history background into that play in some weird way, it was adding so much more than someone who just like had read the entire works of William Shakespeare. That's, <laughs> no, no hate on people because I'm one of those people. And like a diversity of perspective in the room. Yeah. Like because we're a poli sci major, everyone read the same books. They might have slightly different opinions, but they're all coming from the same mental framework. Yeah. Whereas a scientist or a teacher. Um, or, you know, anyone, really, that isn't doing that every, all day, every day um, in their academic life and their professional life is going to have different... It's going to have a fresh take on things, and yeah. that's always going to be helpful. Yeah, totally, I agree. Yeah, I feel the same way when I'm working on shows, like, you know, because, you know, you're not always getting lucky enough to, to do a contract show or working with equity actors, but I feel like even in those instances, you're making something that's even more novel than if you were because you have people who might not be full-time actors or might not be able to live off of their creativity. So you're getting um, someone with a fresh perspective, not only on the art, but also on life because they have so many different facets going on at the same time. Yeah, because they just, just, it's so different. 
and it it really helps it. Yeah. Do you think there are any distinctly American artistic values? Um, I guess with American artistic values, I think that there is much personality based because even like especially in Los Angeles, Los Angeles theater scene of name and face recognition in leading roles. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's who the theaters are choosing to get bus and seats. Understandable. So there's that, and I think there's a lot of like are disappearing mm-hmm. into their work instead of just being themselves or being ourselves within the work instead of disappearing into the world. And I even feel that in my writing. I feel like you can definitely see me, you know, if you knew me, see me in all my plays, and it's almost a little. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree with that. When does, especially looking at, like, you know, the stuff with, like, Jim Acosta getting getting cut out of the press room in the White House and um, seeing the doctored videos um, the White House is sharing about the interaction between Acosta and Trump, do you think there's ever a moment artistically when an artistic, a form of artistic expression becomes propaganda? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so my last question for you is um, sort of tying everything together, but what does it mean to be an artist in America today? To me, to be an artist in America, I think you need 
to be aware. I mean, I guess there's two ways to think about this question. What does it mean to be an artist in America, which is kind of like, what is your truth as an artist in America, or what sh- should the truth be, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's like an ideal, and then there's the reality, and like... For me, I think I'm working towards the ideal of being an artist in America is just trying to do less harm than good at all times, trying to listen to other people but hold them accountable Mm -hmm. when I know something's wrong, and then also trying to be there for other people, especially other artists because it is so hard in a country that doesn't value art, in a culture that is trying to devalue art and expertise and science all at once. Mm -hmm. Like, we need to be there for each other. And I think sometimes it turns into a competitive thing because there's so little room and so little space um, as far as money goes in the theater or in art in general. But I think the key to being an artist and being a good one is being supportive and being there for each other because no one else is going to do that for us. Yeah. Yeah. We're in that kind of a time. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like we're, we in the arts are sort of, at least I feel from, at least from my perspective is like, I'm trying to, to bring about this idea of connection and coming together. But then like in our own profession, we're fighting against like the scarcity complex, you know? Right, exactly, and it's really, really detrimental, and I just, I want, like, this generation of playwrights and actors and artists and, like, advisors, I want all of us to feel like there's enough room for all of us. Yeah. We just have to make, we just have to make the space, mm-hmm. and it, like, the success of your friend is not your failure. Yeah. Or even the, even the success of your enemy is not your failure because again there's enough space. Yeah. Um. It's just about finding it and making it a priority. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you too. It's so great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks again to Hannah Langley. Now on to part two. Part two is my interview with Ricardo Soltero-Brown, who is a playwright, actor, and director. A little bit about him. His plays have been performed and read at Valencia College, Rollins College, University of South Florida, Horizon Theater Company, Dixon Place, Actors Express, RHCR Theater Company, the Orlando International Friends Festival, and more, and he's won several awards, and is published in the Louisville Review and the Dionysian. Here's my interview with Ricardo Soltero-Brown. So Christian Dior is quoted as saying, by being natural and sincere, one often can create revolutions without having sought them. How do you feel about that quote when it comes to what we are experiencing today in regards to truth and sincerity? Well, you know, that reminds me, I don't want to steer too off track, but that reminds me of uh, something Marsha Norman said, Mm -hmm. which was... um, uh, take your plays and uh, perform them in a cafe and eventually you'll develop a following and um, that uh, the what connects those two for me is um, 
if that sincerity is there, uh, time tells us that um, people will respond. Um, I think um, one of the more prevalent um, examples of that on display um, in our culture right now is um, is news media, yeah. um, press. Um, there uh, is a, a great deal of, um, what would you call it, um, team playing. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it gets complicated because um, there's um, a sort of objective uh, uh, stance that one can take. And then there's um, obviously a lot of people who just like to subscribe to their preconceived notions or their, or, yeah. or what, you know, makes them feel good. Yeah. And, um, so that, that to me is, is really, uh, kind of at the, the, the big example right now, um, is, um, is press, which is, you know, and how funny is that, that we're talking about truth and sincerity, that it would be the, the first amendment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've been, I've been really keeping up with that Jim Acosta situation uh, being banned from the White House press room. Um, and the situation has become so volatile that even Fox News has come out in support of Acosta and CNN. And I'm starting to wonder if if this battle for what's true and what's false or fake news or whatever's going on in terms of um, the political and media climate in regards to what's real, I feel like sincerity and truth is, is going to start coming out ahead when we see these kinds of situations where two, you know, big media connections like Fox News and CNN who have been sort of pitted against each other um, based on like uh, people's beliefs are now starting to come together to go, hey, I think we actually have some common ground that we're willing to stand up for. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it's so, it's, it's really dramatic because it's, um, it's ethereal. It doesn't, it's not tangible, you know, it's mm -hmm. not, um, it's not a thing you can hold in your hand. It's, uh, people have, um, a, a deep in, uh, reaction to it. Um, uh, especially, I mean, maybe not at first, but eventually, uh, you know, everyone starts to crack or, or, um, ooze. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Where do you think, um, the truth, you know, in quotations, truth fits into making of art, or particularly what we do in the theater. Well, uh, I definitely believe that truth, um, that art must have um, an element of truth in it, uh, whether it's by in its depiction of whatever its subject is, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a journey say in dramatic art or form in a painting um you know there's there's something about it uh, that um that makes somebody go you know that's not what it is but that's what it is mm -hmm. and um and um it makes um 
it uh, instills a, a sense of completion uh, um, in a way, you know, some sort of uh, um, an acknowledgement of uh, of experience. Yeah. Was there yeah. a was there a moment for you, particularly when you were younger, where there was a defining moment in your relationship to making art? Yeah, there was. Um, I. Uh, in high school, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and then um, uh, I, I figured I could, and I started adapting the, the the movie script into a play. And while I was doing that, I I realized how much I loved dialogue. Yeah. And um, and that was it. Uh, I I knew that's what I was gonna do. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. Looking at this year politically, um, was there any event or events that happened this particular year or even the last two years that have had a direct influence on your work? Uh, yeah, several. Um, I, uh, I'm a contributor to a couple of projects. One is called uh, Protest Plays Project and another one called Code Red Play, uh, Playwrights. And um, they... Uh, they um, collect short uh, plays, sketches, or, or um, about um, certain political issues, social issues. And, and so I've written six or seven of those throughout the year. But uh, I just finished a play uh, about a, a marriage comedy that I had wanted to, to sort of do for a long time. And uh, the couple is um the the drama is that uh one is really upset with how obsessed uh, uh that's how he how uh, the character puts it um how obsessively uh the other is politically conscious that uh there's no room for anything else and that's sort of just sort of came about naturally as I was writing it about the, you know, the sort of hysteria or the, the you know, you can't get away from it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not, it's not been quite like that. And the marriage turns out to be, I think, a, a pretty good metaphor because uh, we're all part of this country. That's, I mean, whether you like it or not, there's people here who you disagree with. Mm. And, um, I mean, you can go away, you can go somewhere else, but, uh, I certainly don't plan to right now. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking of like how I, I keep having these, these, I guess, echoes of like, um, Alfred Jari or, or Brecht coming into like what I see in the news, like events that are happening in the news, and I kind of see echoes of these theatrical um, writers or, or moments that we learn in like theater history. Um, and I'm starting to wonder, uh, particularly with seeing works like Building the Wall coming out, like Robert Schenken's new works, um, and even stuff that Lynn Nottage has been coming out with recently. Um, yeah. How do you think work created or inspired by um, headlines or current events um, influences in positive or negative ways like ideological movements? Um, I think uh, 
I think it depends on the writing. Uh, I, I think Lynn Nottage is a good example because it's not... Uh, it, 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 it allows room for... Um, how, do, how do you put it? Uh, mistakes and, and ugly um, behavior and... and uh, Lynn Nige is, is, a, is a good example because it prove, it shows uh, how connected um, political activity in the country is with domestic activity. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it goes back to that sort of that breaking point that someone might have. Yeah. About, and uh, and I think that's I think that's a good thing to depict. Um, we can learn from that. Uh, just because that's the that's the great thing about dramatic art is that just because a character fails at something or or does something misguided, and then sure a lot of the time learns from it, but can also not learn from it mm-hmm. and. And we, the audience, can recognize that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I'm speaking of Lynn Nottage, she did this um, forum basically with Oscar Eustace and Chelsea Clinton in regards to her new play, uh, more most recent produced play in New York that was about the ivory trade. And I remember when I was watching it thinking, wow, like seeing these three, um, these three people have such an incredibly deep and thoughtful and sophisticated conversation about art and also this this ivory trade industry and seeing how the arts um, not only are such great learning tools, but such great exercises in empathy and understanding into other really complicated um, events or situations going on in the world. Um, and I started wondering if we as an industry are moving back into a more sophisticated political mainstream theater, particularly with the success of like Sweat and Paula Vogel, The Indecent, and seeing the revival of Angels in America, and looking at how um, straight plays are getting back to this kind of early 1900s, um, like more complex dialogues and more complex content um, and musicals. I don't know where they're going yet in terms of a mainstream effect because of all the movie remakes and stuff. Um, do you feel that that's the case? Like we're maybe getting back to theater being a forum for political discourse. I think that there are plenty of uh, excellent examples of that occurring I know I'm a couple years late, but I just read uh, Susan Laurie Parks' um, Father Comes Home from the War. Yeah. And that second act is really something because the Confederate soldier pretty much owns it, uh, the whole second act. And, uh, of course, I can see through his argument, but... She does a a really fascinating job of having him explain what slavery means to him. Yeah. And uh, 
I think that is, uh, I think that's, that's something that, um, that we don't want to shy away from, uh, because, uh, I think being, um, sticking to, you know, uh, what you want to hear mm. doesn't really, doesn't really give any sort of reference point. Yeah. 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 I'm... Um, and, and break, uh, uh, building the wall is, is, is a funny, funny situation. Cause it's, uh, you know, it was sort of a, a nightmare scenario. Yeah. Uh, that, um, we saw, we saw really sort of take place. Yeah, and seeing this <clears throat> this historical fiction set in the future, and and how so much of it seems possible, at least to me it does, and how scary that is. And I'm wondering if you know, I'm being a huge Robert Schenken fan that I am, and and just being such a um, a steadfast um, study of his work. I'm wondering if that play. Um, came out a little too early but if it comes out if they do some sort of major revival or do some sort of major productions or even see it take off in the regional settings of how that play could potentially influence the next two years of our politics particularly seeing the way trump is steering things into some situations that could really develop into what shankin was writing about that's uh that's hard to to really comment on because art is so um, it, it's it's bound uh, with time. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 just because something came out, you know, quote too early or too late or you know, it, there's no telling. Um, there's there, there's just no telling. Mm. Do you think there are any um, speaking of like? <laughs> building the wall which is t- which is talking about which is touching on like american morals and values in, in some places of the play are there any dis- do you think there are any distinctly american artistic values that we have in the theater values yeah um i don't know about values i know themes uh, I, i'd certainly say there are themes uh and so i guess the values would be an interest in in representing those themes. What themes do you think are are you are you talking about? I'm talking about uh, well, shame is a, is a big one, I think, mm-hmm. um, which stems from disillusionment and and failure. Uh, it seems to be for me um, a recurring theme uh, in dramatic works, uh, whether it's divorce or. Um, you know, the nuclear family, uh, um, the American dream, uh, capitalism, there, there, there seems to be a a great deal of, uh, things that don't work out the, here, the way I was told. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, so, uh, but there's a, not to sound too, um, too loftier um but i think ingenuity is another one uh i uh, i think that comes from the melting pot Mm. as it were yeah um 
And the, my my last question is what what does it mean in your opinion to be an artist in America today? Um That reminds me of uh, a story Martin Short um, told because uh, he he's from Canada mm-hmm. and he was he was uh, he came from second I think the second city yeah. uh, it was and uh, he he said that um, when he got to America when he I think he went to Chicago or something I don't I'm not sure but uh, he noticed the difference between the comedians in Canada and the comedians in America and the US and in Canada they were focused a lot on character work and in the US uh, all the material was political Mm. and um, I I think it's just something we can't get away from and uh, maybe that is what maybe that's just how it is yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I enjoy a, a romantic comedy like anybody else, but um, there are issues here that have been uh, stewing and 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 boiling over really uh, for over uh, for almost three hundred years. So, yeah. um, and they're everywhere. You see it every day. I, at least I do. Um, there, there are bubbles as like they say, but, um, I don't know if you take a walk on the sidewalk, you'll, you can see it clearly. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having this conversation. I appreciate it. Well, that's the end of season one. Thank you all so much for listening, liking, sharing, commenting, and please keep it coming. Um, We will not have any new episodes until the new year, but with that, I'd like to thank our guests this season, Cesar Reyes, Stephanie Lutz, Ricardo Soltero-Brown, and Hannah Langley. I'd also like to thank our producers at Wolf and Thunder Productions. And as we're all getting towards the new year, please feel free to continue liking, subscribing, sharing at, at Podspell on Instagram and Twitter liking us on Facebook, and going ahead and leaving us comments or reviews or suggestions on what you might want to hear next season. Thank you so much. Day by day, create, and create for the good of creating. See you next year.